Amen. Good morning. Thank you, Eric, for that. I'm going to put these papers here. Thank you. We could just go after that prayer. I mean, that was basically everything. Uh, my name's Jason. You know me uh, from the screen earlier. That, that was awkward to look up and see my face. I am, uh, if you don't know, uh, normally the pastor of guitar. Um, just kidding. Um, but thank you, Wade, and, and the band. It's a wonderful time of worship today. Um, there's no, no time to dilly-dally. I've got a lot to say, um, as always. So today we're continuing in the series uh, called Courageous Church, and we're wrestling in this series with a big question. The question is more or less, how can we be a church that clings faithfully to Christ as we live as elect exiles given the particular and unique difficulties of our world today? So I'm going to start with a story. It's not a story that I want to tell because it reveals things about me that I would not like you to know. Some of you will think less of me. Some of you know me well enough that it will only confirm what you already know. Either way, here it is. I was, I was 16 in 2001. I passed my driver's test, first try, no big deal. I started driving, and like any reasonable human being, I wore my seatbelt as I drove. About five years later, when I was 21, my brain still not fully developed, keep in mind, Kentucky passed a seatbelt law that made the thing I was already doing a um, legal necessity. So in protest and in stupidity, I stopped wearing my seatbelt. I was fighting the power, sticking it to the man. And I was fined about $50 in all. <laughs> and eventually, enough people who cared about me were like, man, this protest is dumb. And, uh, and I started wearing my seatbelt. And um, I tell you this so that you know a little bit about me as we come to this topic today. My guess is that as I say this, some of you can relate to me. And that's your just natural bent. And some of you think I'm crazy. Like that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And that's okay, because the Bible is going to challenge all of us. And so people, for people like me, it's going to challenge us to respect those in authority, pray for them, um, to do all that we can to live a peaceful and quiet life. And if your natural bent is towards submission, just going along with things, not causing any waves, the Bible will call you to boldly resist the authorities at times. And so what I want us to see today is that God's people are called to be nonconformists all the time. And in our nonconformity, we will at times be called to noncompliance. All right, so that's sort of the broad stroke idea today. Always nonconforming, sometimes noncomplying. All right, so with that said, here's a roadmap for where we're going to go. Most of our time today will be spent working through Daniel 3. As we work through it, I have five observations and some practical application of those observations. And then we're going to end with a few additional thoughts about Christian resistance uh, in our world today. So if you have a Bible, please open to Daniel 3. As you're doing that, I'm going to remind you a bit of the context of Daniel. So the pagan nation of Babylon has conquered Israel. As they conquered, they took some of the highly exceptional youths uh, to Babylon to re-educate them in the ways of uh, ba Babylon uh, and that they would serve the king, Nebuchadnezzar. 
The book of Daniel follows mostly Daniel, but also his companions. Um, They were given these Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, For two chapters, these Hebrew boys have set themselves apart um, by their behavior, by behaving differently, and by their wisdom. So uh, throughout, so we've read, if we're reading along, chapters one and two show them acting differently, setting themselves apart, and standing out in terms of their performance. Chapter 2 ends with Nebuchadnezzar worshiping Yahweh, and he promotes Daniel uh, to a high position, who also then sort of uh, advocates for the other three, and they're all appointed to high positions in Babylon. So that's the setting, that's the context, and so as we come to verse 1 of chapter 3, we read this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Skipping down a little bit to verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's quite a change from the end of chapter 2, but here we are. My first observation as we start is that tension is the normal relationship between Christians and the world. So in this series, we're exploring a topic that is as old as the church and even older. It's there in God's promise to make Abraham a blessing to the nations. It's there as God gives his law to his people. It's there in the conquest stories of Joshua. The question is, what is the church's relationship to the world? So in John's gospel, we see that Jesus is the light that shines into the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. And John is also the one who records Jesus saying that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for those who would believe in him. And John also records Jesus' words, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So in Daniel as well, there's a conflict between the word of God and the word of Nebuchadnezzar. So these Hebrew boys know well the second commandment prevents them from doing what Nebuchadnezzar is asking. It says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them. So we've set up a clear dilemma to obey the king or to obey God. And my point at this, at this stage is that it is the normal state of God's people in the world um, as we are underneath worldly powers. God warned his people that this is true through the prophet Samuel. So the elders at this point came to Samuel. This is in um, the beginning of 1 Samuel uh, 7 and 8. The elders come to him and demand that he appoint a king to judge them like all the nations. And the Lord said to Samuel... Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. 
So Israel wanted a king like the other nations. God says that this is a rejection of his own sovereignty. But he gives them what he wants. But it comes with this warning. So this is what he tells Samuel to tell the people. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants." He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Maybe you heard a repeated word in there. So God doesn't say bad kings will do these things. He says kings will do these things. And even David, Israel's best king, did these things. There will always be a tension between the church and the world and its authorities. In the best case, those over us will take our taxes and inscript us for service and take our land. But they will also seek the commonwealth of the people that they serve. And in rare cases, like David, they will also call us to worship God. But our message to those in power remains the same as Daniel in chapter 2. If we could just imagine this image, Daniel, slave Hebrew boy, stands before Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, and says, here's what your dream means. It means your rule is temporary and conditional. And that is our relationship to those in power today. So we, we tell them the truth, which is what Jesus said. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Our message to those uh, to the world is that your kingdoms will end. There is a kingdom that will crush your kingdom, and it shall stand forever. See Daniel 2. So an implication of this is that Christians don't join the world in freaking out about taxation, regulations, mandates, bureaucracy, So I'm not saying that these things are good. They are on a spectrum from annoying to unjust. I am saying that God told us what to expect. And I think God was right. That was an insert laugh. (laughs) Because God is always right. That was the point. We expect there to be a tension. And that tension will not be unresolved until Jesus returns. So that's my, my first observation. Tension is the normal relationship between Christians and the world. So let's pick back up with verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a fiery furnace. There are certain Jews who you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So here's my second observation. We navigate the tension through assimilation, compromise, and resistance. So in some ways, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego assimilate into Babylonian culture. So Michael pointed this out a couple weeks ago, that they are given new names, and these new names are these Babylonian names that, are, that, that honor Babylonian gods. So they don't take their stand when they're made to learn the language and, and literature of the Chaldeans. And in fact, we're told that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and that the king spoke with them, and among all of them that he had taken, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're uh, Hebrew names. Therefore, they stood before the king. So they assimilate. Now, this doesn't mean, as we've already seen, that they conform. But in many ways, if you just looked at them, they looked just like all the other Babylonians. And in other ways, they compromised. So Daniel, we saw a couple weeks ago, negotiates with the chief eunuch to change their diet. But he didn't demand kosher meals. He didn't demand to be able to make sacrifices or whatever, but he asked for vegetables. It was a compromise, and it set them apart as different from the others. So they assimilate when they can. They compromise when possible. And then there are times for resistance. So when Nebuchadnezzar demands that they bow before his golden image, they refuse. So in some ways, we likewise should be indistinguishable from the world around us. We get up in the morning, put on our blue jeans and flannels, eat eggs and toast, drive our kids to school, fill up our gas tanks, go to work. We all like Marvel movies and Taylor Swift. I mean, I don't, but, I, but everybody else seems to. So. so we assimilate in some ways to America 2022. And in some ways, we compromise. <clears throat> And, and all of us will feel this compromise differently when we ask questions like, how do we participate in an economy that is not just for everyone? How do we vote when all the candidates are wicked and foolish? How do we go to work when our company demands too many hours and is devoted to achieving ends that are troubling or who promotes ideology that is opposed to God's word? 
So my kids go to public school. Some of you haven't and won't make the same decision. Where we draw the lines of consciousness around how we work, play, learn, entertain, worship, and vote, in all these areas, there's compromises to be made because Jesus has not returned yet. And then we come to times where we must resist. And this is when our nonconformity turns to noncompliance. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's idol or die, and they refused to bow. So as much as we can assimilate in some ways and we can compromise in some ways, there will be times to resist. My point at this, at this moment is that all three are needed and appropriate. In our day, though, resistance tends to be the dominant mode for a lot of us. Like, you show me a rule or a law, and I'll show you an online group calling that rule or law tyranny. <laughs> Who's, they're stockpiling weapons and gas masks, and they are ready to fight. Some of you have been conformed, my guess, I guess, <laughs> to the world in this way, and we need to change our hearts toward the authorities. Some of you need to submit, pray for those in authority, cultivate a, a heart and a mind that is understanding and hopeful toward them, even as we must resist at times. And, and some of you, as we've already said, need to be reminded that there are times when a, a, a firm resistance is what's called for. You need to be ready to boldly resist and suffer the consequences. So that's my second observation, that we assimilate, compromise, and resist. All three are needed at times. Okay, let's jump back in, starting at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, and God, the God whom we serve, uh, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. So my third observation is that our method of noncompliance must not be worldly. Our method of noncompliance must be not conformed to the world. So we see in this passage that the Hebrews resist quietly, they do not defend themselves, and they confidently face the consequences of their resistance. So there's, there's a modesty in Christian resistance. They were content to be non-compliant in silence, but they were outed by the Chaldeans who accused them maliciously. So like Jesus before Pilate, they do not defend themselves. This is Jesus, uh, this is Jesus before Pilate. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus didn't defend himself against the false charges brought to him. In our day, self-justification is the rule. But Christians do not justify themselves. God justifies us. We take our stand where we must, we resist when we must, and God justifies us. So in their, in their non-defense, they accept the consequences of their resistance. 
They do not resist the fire chamber. They accept Nebuchadnezzar's ability to throw them in the fire. They are not assured of any outcome. And yet, they are confident in God's supremacy. They are confident in God that he will uh, save them. And if, they, if God doesn't, they still say, we cannot do what you've asked. So today, in our world, when it is necessary for us to resist, we should likewise know that resistance comes with consequences. We should be ready to accept those consequences with a quiet and bold confidence in God who can change the situation. And yet, even if he doesn't, even if we must resist to our own death, we are willing to face the fiery furnace. So let's pick up the story again in verse 24. Um, Skipping a little bit. So Nebuchadnezzar is enraged by their response. He turns up the furnace hotter because, you know, cold fire might not kill them enough. <laughs> so the men who throw them into the fire actually die because they're so close to this hot fire. And then we pick up at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, Oh, uh, true, O king, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I just, I don't know if you got chills. Do you get chills? It's like when they say Mustafa and Lion King. <laughs> so here's my fourth observation. We will meet Jesus when our resistance causes suffering. So God doesn't just save them from the fire, but he walks with them in it. It's Jesus. It's like no one told him he's not supposed to be in the Old Testament. It's <laughs> Jesus walking around. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we know that he is with us in it. Romans 8 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We suffer with Christ. He is with us. Hear this from a document. This is describing the martyrdom of Polycarp, one of the early church fathers. This is talking about a broader... Um, Martyrdom. We'll look at Polycarp a bit later, but it says, Cut by scourges until the anatomy of the body was visible. Even to the veins and arteries, they endured everything. Even the spectators pitied and bewailed them. The noble martyrs of Christ attained such towering strength of soul that not one of them uttered a cry or a groan. They proved to all of us that in the hour of their torture, they were free of the body, or rather that the Lord himself stood by them and talked with them. All right, let's finish this chapter. We're going to start at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of, from the fire. 
And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. What a detail. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So here's my final observation. We will be honored for our resistance. When we stand firm on God's word, when we refuse to bow to idols and suffer the consequences from the rulers who demand compliance, we can know for sure that we will be honored. We don't know when or by whom. We can be assured that God will honor us. I've, for the sake of time, I've cut out some stuff from Revelation, but we can be sure that God will honor us. Sometimes we will see it here, the world will honor us, and sometimes we have to wait Nebuchadnezzar is a fickle fool. We see it all throughout the book. He honors Yahweh one moment, and then he's building idols the next. He makes foolish laws that require idolatry. Then he regrets them. He's making laws, we'll see, while drunk. But here he is again, humbled by God, and here he is again honoring Yahweh, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's commandments. I mean, the irony, it's, he's, like, he's such a fickle man who's saying, bless their God because they refuse to obey me. So when we stand firm against the world, we will be opposed People will be outraged as we resist. We will be punished. Another section that I, that I cut for time, Jesus says, when you are drugged before the courts. Not if, when. We may be honored. We will be, we will be punished, but we will also be honored. And sometimes by those same people who were outraged, Listen, I'm not saying we go looking for a fight. It's better to be honored than imprisoned. But for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and for us, it makes no difference in terms of our actions. We are steadfast. May we be steady when we are honored and when we are disgraced and punished. May we stand firm when we are dragged before the authorities, when we are mocked by our family members, when we are fired from our jobs. May we stand all the same when we are respected and honored and Praise God for both. He is faithful in all of them. So those are my five observations about the text. And so here, here they are one more time, uh, said uh, more as a paragraph. Tension is the normal and expected condition of the church in the world. In response to this t- tension, we will at times assimilate, at times compromise, and at times we must resist. The modes and methods of our resistance must be godly and not conform to the patterns of this world. 
Jesus will be with us as we suffer the consequences of our resistance. And we will be honored for faithful resistance by God, if no one else, but at times by those who once opposed us. So, those are my five observations. I want to transition to a conclusion and hopefully tie some ideas together in a way that's helpful for us to think about resistance today in our world. But first, I want to read um, kind of a lengthy passage from Polycarp's martyrdom. Um, I find these stories of the martyrs facing the authorities and death incredibly inspiring. Um, and I think that this passage highlights some of the things that we've seen in Daniel. So this is a bit of a lengthy passage, but this is about one of the early church fathers uh, who was martyred. So when I say they, I'm going to start reading sort of midway, and it's talking about the authorities that were looking for Polycarp um, to accuse him. Late that evening, they came upon him and found him in an upper room of a small cottage. They were amazed at his great age and his calm dignity. He immediately ordered food and drink to be served to them as much as they wanted. And he asked them to give him an hour for undisturbed prayer. And when the moment of departure came, they seated him on a donkey and in this way brought him into the city. It was a great Sabbath. Herod, the chief of police, and Nicetes, his father, rode to meet him. They took him into their carriage and, sitting next to him, urged him by saying, What is wrong with saying, Lord and Caesar and sacrificing and the rest of it, and thereby saving your life? At first he did not answer them, but when they did not leave him in peace, he said, I am not willing to do as you advise me. When he entered the arena, there was such a tremendous uproar that nobody could be understood. They urged him, Swear by the genius of Caesar, change your mind, say, away with the atheists. Quick pause, Christians were considered atheists at this point. <laughs> Polycarp, however, looked with a serious expression up upon the whole mob assembled in the arena. He waved his hand over them, sighed deeply, looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. But the proconsul pressed him further and said to him, Swear, and I will release you. Curse Christ. And Polycarp answered, Eighty-six years I've served him, and he has never done me any harm. How could I blaspheme my king and savior? When the proconsul still pressed him, saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar, he replied, If you desire the empty triumph of making me swear by the genius of Caesar according to your intention, and if you pretend that you do not know who I am, here is my frank confession. I am a Christian. If you are willing to learn what Christianity is, set a time at which you can hear me. Love it. The proconsul replied, try to persuade the people. Polycarp answered him, you, I consider worthy that I should give an explanation, for we have been taught to pay respects to governments and authorities appointed by God as long as it does us no harm. But as to that crowd, I do not consider them worthy of my defense. Thereupon the proconsul declared, I have wild beasts. I should have you thrown before them if you do not change your mind. Let them come, he replied. It is out of question for us to change from the better to the worse. But the opposite is worthy of honor, to turn from evil to justice. The proconsul concluded, If you belittle the beast and do not change your mind, I, I shall have you thrown into the fire. 
Polycarp answered him, you threaten me with a fire that burns but for an hour and goes out after a short time. For you do not know the fire of the coming judgment for, of eternal punishment for the godless. Why do you wait? Bring on whatever you will. As Polycarp spoke these and similar words, he was full of courage and joy. His face is shone with an inward light. He was not in the least disconcerted by all these threats. The proconsul was astonished. Second time I'm going to end there, but like they try to burn him and he doesn't burn. It's a really wonderful story. So in conclusion, I want to give us a framework for thinking about resistance today. The Bible uses a few different metaphors for how we relate to the world. So some of these are familiar. We probably know that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus says that his kingdom is not from this world, and that is why his disciples didn't fight to defend him. We are also called ambassadors for Christ. We're called spiritual warriors who battle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and principalities. And I find another metaphor helpful, sort of ties some of these things together, and that is that we are spies, spies for Jesus. Somebody print a shirt, hashtag that. It's not a perfect metaphor, but let me show you what I mean. It's like there are three steps to being a spy for Jesus. First, as we think about nonconformity, spies must believe in the values of their homeland. Spy being sent out, he or she is being sent into the belly of the beast to blend in, to undermine the values of the host country. If they are not grounded, if they are not true believers in the values of their homeland, they will be flipped. They'll turn. They may even become a double agent. They would turn against the country that sent them. We've seen that in the church. So how do we do that? How do we have this kind of nonconformity? Hear this from Romans 12 to Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that means we meditate on the word of God. We memorize it. We think about it as we lay in bed at night. We listen to preaching. So we resist conformity through changing our minds, being transformed in our minds. We also resist conforming through faithfulness to the church. So I assume you've probably seen at least one spy film in your life. They almost all have this scene where one of the spies is doubting the mission. Is it worth it? Can we do it? And maybe even they're starting to think, what's so bad about this place anyway? And in this doubt, a member of the spy network, probably somebody who brought them in, has been with them through mission after mission, reminds them that what they're doing is good even better if they've suffered something together and it's like I need you we need you think of think of all we've been together through together so we need each other in the church to keep each other from conforming and finally we're not conformed but renewed through worship and by worship I don't just mean singing songs I mean a whole person devotion to Jesus praise proclamation service at a heart level, we are devoted to our King Jesus. 
So we do this, as we've already said, always, non-conforming always, through the word, faithfulness to the church, um, through worship. And secondly, as spies, we must be discerning about our host country. We must discern the world. So the world is not neutral. It wants to flip you. Again, think about whatever spy movie you've seen where there's that, they might turn double agent. It wants to win you over to its values, worship its gods. And this is important. There's a sequence to, to this. So we're renewed in our minds, not conformed to the world. We fellowship with God's people. We worship Christ. We pray. And then we discern our world. So I want to say what I'm saying a bit more bluntly. You can't discern the world when you are in the world all day, every day. And to put that a little more bluntly, you can't discern the world on social media or by watching Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow. And I pick some extremes, but you can fill in your favorite pundit. Now, to be a bit more blunt, and this might hurt, but it's for your own good. It's like a scalpel. The algorithms that run social media and news media sites are meant to give you a sense of being wise and discerning. Everyone else feels the exact same sense of superiority as you do. Everyone is dumbfounded at the stupidity of the other side. That's why it works. That's why we keep going back to it. We can't discern the world on the world's terms or steeped in the world's media. Somebody might say, man, I don't know. So what do we do? I suggest that we all do media audits of our lives. Frequently, we must limit some things, we must ignore other things, but we need discipline to, to, as the Bible says, take every thought captive. So C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this nice little article on the reading of old books, and he says that for every new book we read, we should read one old book. And then he's kind of like, well, you're probably not going to do that. He makes a concession. At least one old book for every two or three new ones. And I think we need to update his advice to the digital age. So a, f- a few years ago, I was teaching at this little college, and I started to notice this trend that just blew me away. When I would ask students where they got their news, they started saying social media. I was just like, what does that even mean? It didn't make any sense. And now I think it's normal and probably commonplace for social media to be the main way that people consume news. So how about we say with Lewis, for every minute on social media, You read a minute of scripture, read the early church fathers, the reformers, or an early 20th century post-war writer, thinker. The point, Lewis is saying, isn't that they didn't make any mistakes, but they made different ones. They were different from us, and they help us discern our present by being situated differently. So... What I am saying is that if you spend all your time consuming news, then you are not discerning anything. The algorithm will make you think you're discerning something, but you're discerning nothing. You're like on a raft tossed by a stormy sea, by what some authors have called the tyranny of the present. So what I'm not saying is that we ignore the news. I'm just saying, I'm saying we discern the media We consume Christianly. 
And that means we don't view the media as a daily scoreboard for whether our side is winning or losing. We look through it to understand how to love our neighbors, how to preach the gospel today. And as we are not conformed, as we discern our world, these things will come together at times in non-compliance. This is where the rubber meets the road. So when... When is it time to non-comply? How and why? You have questions. I don't have answers. (laughs) The truth is I can't tell you when to resist. There may be times where it's clear. And we would say, brothers and sisters, we must resist. But again, I want to focus on the sequence. When we are not conformed but renewed in our minds, when we've spent time carefully discerning our world in prayer and in the church, Then, when we come to moments of non-compliance, in that order. So, as we saw with the Hebrew children, how we resist should be shaped by who we are in Christ. So, for the sake of time, I'm going to hit some uh, thoughts about this really quickly. Uh, It sort of hurts me in my soul how this feels so incomplete, but, but here are some thoughts. And we can continue discussing in city group, or you can email me, or whatever. First of all, love is the core Christian virtue and must shape everything we do. So yes, it's true that we want to undermine the values of the world, but because we love the world that is lost and needs Jesus, we undermine the world for the world. So taking stands, resisting the world, does not make us faithful Christians. All of our stances and resistance is a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal if we do not have love. That's one. Two, we should take care that our resistance isn't self-serving. So I said this earlier, that there's a group online right now claiming that everything under the sun is tyranny to be resisted. So our default position is Christians should be submissive and compliant, not conformed, Submissive and compliant. Christians are the ones who suffer the offense. Love those who hate us. Pray for those who persecute us. And we resist after considering all of these things and bringing them into the light of Christian character. Three, we must be careful that those places where we do take stands and we resist don't get added into our gospel box. Now this is incredibly difficult because if you're taking big risks... If you're getting ridiculed because you have said no, it is so hard not to make those things tests of faithfulness for other Christians. That's three. Fourth, our allegiance must be to Christ and his church. Our first allegiance. For us here, if you're a member, that means Christ the King. It's not an abstract church. You can look around. Now, why does that matter? The church is like an anti-algorithm. Tweet that. (laughs) Algorithms move us into predictable streams of thought and behavior. That's their job, and they're really good at it. In the church, we are pushed toward each other in love, not pushed away from each other in judgment and isolation. So algorithms push us to positions And look, we must have stances on things and we must be unwavering in them. 
but the church and the love, the gospel, compels us to come together. We are compelled by love. This is where I just have the word examples. Looking at the time, I do want to hold up. Like, I think I, I often will cite me and Eric Tuff and Sam as a good example of this because we see things differently on a lot of things. And I trust him. If I said, go ask Eric Tuff and Sam about Jason Hudson's politics, I think he would tell you accurately and lovingly what I think and what I believe. An algorithm would say, cut that guy off. Canceled. Because we don't share this or that, whatever. So here's the point. Whatever examples that I could say, if we put in, and there are those that would get you excited and get you mad, there is somebody in this church who might have a different perspective. That's what like, knowing each other is about, city group is about. And you say, like, that's crazy. How can anyone think that? You might sit down with somebody and find out either they're less crazy than you thought or they need to be called to confess and repent. Either way, we don't win anything by being pushed into these uh, increasingly nuanced groups. The church is our anti-algorithm, and it pushes us together. Finally, the goal of everything, of all of this, is that we would be like Jesus. So what we see, Jesus, who called Herod that fox, and he didn't mean, like, sexy guy. <laughs> Jesus, who was evasive and silent before Pilate. Jesus, who pulled a coin out of a fish's mouth to mock Caesar's power. And Jesus, who willingly went to the cross, suffered the Roman death penalty. So may we be like our Savior, who demonstrates all of these right, appropriate, and even holy responses to our authorities. May we be like Jesus. Um, I do want to end with Jesus, uh, a, a saying from Jesus. He's sending his disciples out into the world. I think what he is saying today can be helpful for us. It's true of us as we go out of this place into the world. He said, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts to flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and, f and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. May we be encouraged by that today. Um, so let's, let's pray. Um, after prayer, I'll um, lead us into communion as the band comes up. Jesus, you have placed us in this world. You have not taken us out of this world. And as much as we feel the tension every day as we engage with the world's media, as we go to work, as we see um, 
what's being taught, what's being valued. Um, as we engage in the world, Lord, we feel a tension. I am thankful, Lord, that none of us have, have had to put our literal necks on the line for you, though we know that Christians throughout church history have been put to death. Thank you for the witness of Brother Polycarp. May we all have a boldness that would say, let them come to the wild beast. May we have that boldness as we're making decisions about resisting the world today. Jesus, all of it is for your sake and that we would be like you and glorify you and honor you in our lives and in our thoughts and our words. As we think about coming to the table, we know that you were the one who went before the authorities, you resisted, you were silent, and ultimately you submitted to death on a cross. And in that death on a cross, you put the authorities to shame. It was all that Rome had, all the wicked powers had to put you to death, but you overcame death. You rose to new life. Lord, we now are children by adoption, and we inherit that same power by the Holy Spirit. As Romans 8 tells us that the same Spirit that gave life to Jesus' body will give life to our mortal bodies as well. We all stand and sit here as Holy Spirit people destined for resurrection, that, that no power has anything to throw at us that isn't already overcome. <laughs> encourage us today, and as we come to the table, encourage us in this meal that the symbol of your poured out blood and broken body is ultimately the symbol of your victory. Build us up in that power of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you are doing this in us and that no matter what we face today or tomorrow, we know that you have overcome so much worse and that there will be, as Eric already prayed, there will be a revival You've always had for yourself a remnant of the faithful. Encourage us, Lord. I pray all this in your wonderful, holy name. Amen.